Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 235, Sundered by Gold. Last time, we looked at the consequences of the Second Crusade on imperial policy. The passage of huge Latin armies through the Balkans had been worrying enough for Manuel Komnenos, but the appearance of a Norman fleet in the Aegean, sacking Byzantine towns, was an existential threat. The Latins were clearly powerful enough to take Constantinople, something which had never before been the case. Manuel responded by realigning his priorities. The pursuit of Antioch would have to take a back seat to shutting down the Normans of Sicily. The fledgling kingdom of Roger II was too strong and too distant to be wiped out by the Byzantines alone, but perhaps with German assistance, its wings could be properly clipped. As we heard last episode, Manuel's plans for Italy were delayed for several years because of conflicts with Serbia and Hungary. The emperor couldn't send troops across the Adriatic while the Balkans were in turmoil, but he could send diplomats. So while Manuel put out fires on the Danube, imperial agents armed with cash were dispatched to Ancona. Ancona is a port city on the east coast of Italy, but it's a long way from Apulia. It's much closer to Ravenna than to Bari, but it was the nearest friendly harbour the Byzantines could access. The two leaders of this embassy were John Ducas and Michael Paleologos. Both were descendants of major figures from Alexius's court and were trusted by Manuel. They were given a large sum of money and ordered to spread it around to those who might be interested in rebelling against the new Norman king. You might think that the Venetians would have been helpful during this time, but they weren't. Although the merchants of Venice wanted to shut Norman shipping down, they didn't really want the Romans to return to Apulia. If the empire gained control of both coasts of the Adriatic, they might become less dependent on Venetian aid. So Ducas and Paleologos were on their own and began to make inquiries amongst the many noblemen of central and southern Italy. Plenty of people were interested, but no one was biting yet. Then, in early 1154, news came that King Roger of Sicily had passed away. Now was the moment to strike. 
All medieval states were vulnerable when a long-standing ruler died. Elites who had become comfortable in a certain pecking order were suddenly disturbed, and everyone dreamed of a place higher up the ladder. Now men told the Roman envoys that they were willing to throw off the Norman yoke. The timing really did seem perfect, since Frederick Barbarossa, the German emperor, was already marching for Italy. Ducas and Paleologos met with Frederick and offered him huge sums of money to prosecute a war in the south, but it was not to be. The German army, in the area to secure the emperor's rights, had already met resistance in Milan, Rome and elsewhere. Sickness was also rife in their camp, and Frederick headed home. But since he seemed well disposed towards the Byzantines, they made their move anyway. In spring 1155, imperial troops arrived at Ancona, and war began. Manuel had dispatched a small mercenary force, while Ducas and Paleologos hired knights from Ancona. They were joined by Robert of Bassenville, the Count of Loritello. He was one of Roger's nephews and saw this as an opportunity to carve out a kingdom of his own. With promises of help from the leaders of Rupa Canina and Capua, the rebellion seemed ready to succeed. The Allied force sailed down the coast from Ancona in the summer of 1155 and began seizing Apulian towns. After capturing Vieste, the army moved on to Bari. Bari was probably the city with the fondest memories of Byzantine rule, and after Ducas and Paleologos spread some gold around, the town went over to the imperial side. Our historian Kinemus gets rather poetic when describing how quickly the bribes worked. The pro-Byzantine residents of the town took up arms and began attacking those who opposed them. Kinemus says, It was something really worthy of wonder to see those lately united in race and purpose, today sundered by gold, as if by a wall feeling hatred towards one another and already divided by deeds. This was a major victory, and immediately the towns of Trani, Giovinazzo and Ruvo all offered to join the new alliance. Other towns resisted initially, but after the Count of Andrea was killed in a skirmish, the mood in Apulia changed. Montepeloso, Gravina, Monopoli were all taken, and even after Paleologos died of a fever, Ducas was able to lead the army south and capture more strong points. John Ducas knew, though, that things were approaching their endgame. In spring 1156, news came that Roger's son, the new Norman king William, was preparing his army. The Byzantines had to capture Brindisi, the last major port on the east coast, if they stood a chance of holding out against him. Ducas wrote to Manuel asking for reinforcements, then he led his army to Brindisi and put it under siege. The Romans eventually broke through the walls and occupied the town, but they couldn't dislodge the Norman garrison from the citadel. It was now a race against time. William landed in April and marched north with a huge army. The garrison of Brindisi had been close to giving in, but now held on with renewed vigour. The imperial coalition began to come apart. Robert of Bassenville had hoped that the Romans were conquering this territory on his behalf and had been disillusioned to discover he was only viewed as a junior ally. He now abandoned Ducas, retreating north to defend his own patch. Next, the knights from Ancona suddenly asked, 
for their pay to be doubled. Ducas refused and lost his best cavalry as a result. Although Byzantine ships did arrive, the troops they carried were not nearly strong enough to face a full Norman field army. To Ducas's credit, or shame, depending on who you ask, he stood and fought William when the king arrived, but the Romans were quickly overrun and John was taken prisoner. The towns of Apulia abandoned the Byzantines immediately. Any evidence of the success of Manuel's expedition evaporated in a matter of days. You might be wondering why Manuel didn't send more troops. Didn't I say he wanted Apulia more than Antioch, and yet this is all he sends? A small invasion force easily picked off? Yes, that's all true. Obviously, there were practical reasons for not sending lots of troops to Italy. It was very expensive and risky to take soldiers out of the Balkans and ship them across the sea. And as we'll discuss later, the Balkans were not really at peace. But I think Manuel was also wary of being too visible in Italy, which might sound ridiculous given he just launched an invasion, but the Vasilevs knew that both the Pope and the German Emperor were wary of a Byzantine revival. In fact, when Frederick was in Rome three years earlier, he agreed with the pontiff that no Byzantine presence in the south would be officially tolerated. It seems then that Manuel was hoping to keep this invasion a relatively quiet affair. The goal seems to have been to just wrench the ports of Apulia out of William's hands and then give them to local forces to run. Presumably small Byzantine garrisons would hold various citadels, but the outward face of the new regime would be Italian, or at least Norman. Constantinople was awash with Norman exiles, whom Manuel hoped to unleash on Apulia as a rival faction against William. In time, he hoped that the Pope and Emperor would accept these ports as spheres of Byzantine interest and be satisfied that they were not in Sicily's hands. Looked at one way, this was wise realpolitik from Manuel, a way to get what he wanted in the most broadly accepted manner possible. Looked at another way, it was a laughable and expensive failure that had no chance of succeeding, and, oh look, it just didn't. Coniates, looking back in anger, points to the sheer amount of money wasted on this campaign. The figure of £30,000 of gold has been mentioned by scholars, but I don't know how accurate that is. If you accept that Apulia really was more important than Antioch, then I guess Manuel had to keep fighting, right? The emperor dispatched more agents and more money to Ancona to keep the rebellion alive. Gold was handed over to those willing to thumb their nose at Norman power. However, two years later, in 1158, William offered the emperor a peace treaty and Manuel took it. The Normans promised not to harm Byzantine interests, while Manuel recognised William as King of Sicily, essentially surrendering Byzantine claims to be the true masters of those lands. It sounds like a shocking concession, until you realise that it was just expediency on Manuel's part. That same year, 1158, he marched all the way to Antioch and beyond, something we'll talk about in our next episode, so he had to secure his flank before he could set off. Two years after that, we hear of an embassy exchanged between Manuel and Frederick Barbarossa 
where the invasion of southern Italy was again being discussed. The emperor was still asking for the ports of Apulia in exchange for helping the Germans crush the Normans. Unfortunately, the relationship between Byzantium and Germany was changing, making it harder for Manuel to pursue a consistent policy over Apulia. Frederick's predecessor, Conrad, had never been sure of his position as emperor, whereas Barbarossa was determined to enforce his rights and dictate policy to everyone in the Holy Roman Empire and beyond. This caused particular friction in Italy, where the cities of the north and the papacy were determined to maintain a degree of independence. In 1159, the sitting pope died, and there were two rivals to take his place. Frederick chose Victor IV, but almost everyone else chose Alexander III. You might think that Manuel would simply back Frederick's choice in order to maintain good relations with such an important ally. But that would have put Manuel at odds with Venice, Hungary, and the Crusader states, all of whom he wanted to avoid conflict with. Manuel had to act carefully. He couldn't afford to alienate the Latin world and see a crusade called against him. So the Vasilevs was forced to acknowledge Alexander as the rightful pope and watch as he excommunicated the German emperor. Dynastic relations also worked against the old alliance. For a while, Frederick was considering marrying one of Manuel's relatives, but in the end decided on Beatrice of Burgundy instead. While Manuel's German wife, Bertha, died in 1159, cutting a vital cord between the two sides. It all left Manuel in an odd position. He continued to funnel money through Ancona to those willing to work for Byzantine interests. At times, this money aided Frederick's enemies. And yet, whenever the suggestion came from Germany that the alliance might be renewed, Manuel was keen to discuss it. So the empire drifted onwards, hoping to revive a war between Germany and Sicily, while publicly at peace with the Normans, who remained the most likely threat to imperial security. It was a wait-and-see policy, which achieved little, but continued to cost money. While all this was going on, Manuel was called into action back in the Balkans. Last episode, we left Komnenos at the Danube in the summer of 1153, concluding a peace with King Geza II of Hungary. The two sides had exchanged some nasty blows recently, but neither seemed to want war, and so they renewed the peace treaty that had kept things quiet for the previous 20 years. You can imagine Manuel's shock, then, when the following summer messengers arrived to tell him that Geza's troops were at the border. The emperor was in northern Greece overseeing the operation in Italy, and didn't have his full army with him. As he marched north, he realised that he would be unable to confront the Hungarians directly. They were besieging the city of Branicevo as the Romans approached. So Manuel attempted a ruse. He had letters attached to arrows and fired them into the city for his garrison to read. The letters said, hold steady, I'll be there soon with my full army. Then the archers, accidentally on purpose, fired some arrows into the Hungarian camp. The letters were brought to Geza, who broke off the siege 
and went home. So why were the Hungarians attacking the border? Well, do you remember last week I mentioned Manoel's cousin Andronicus? Andronicus was sent to Cilicia to try and recover it from the Armenians who dominated the Taurus Mountains. Andronicus signally failed in this task. Returning home, Manoel placed him in charge of the border with Hungary, presumably because, having just signed a peace treaty, he wasn't anticipating any trouble. What Manoel didn't know, though, was that trouble was Andronicus's middle name. The Komnenian prince sent word to the king of Hungary, offering him a tasty deal. Andronicus would cede Belgrade, Branicevo and Nish to the Hungarians if they could march on Constantinople and install him as emperor. It was an offer King Geza couldn't refuse, so he marched south and put Branicevo under siege. With his allies in place, Andronicus set off to murder his cousin. Andronicus's plan was to join the emperor on a hunting trip, get him alone, and kill him. In the confusion that followed, Andronicus would escape and suddenly appear at Constantinople, backed by a Hungarian army, and thus assume the throne. The crafty scheme fell at the first hurdle, though, when Andronicus failed to kill Manuel. Obviously, the emperor was surrounded by people, even on a hunting trip, and one of them noticed that Andronicus's associates were strapping on armour. The alarm was raised, and Andronicus was arrested. I think we'll do a whole episode on Manoel's court and family, where we can talk more about Andronicus. For those of you reading ahead, Manoel's cousin will eventually murder the emperor's son, become Vasilevs himself, and plunge Byzantium into a crisis from which it will never recover. So yeah, we should get to know him a little better. Naturally, after the attack on Branicevo, Manoel had to recall his army in spring 1155 and march back to the Danube to put the Hungarians down. But realising his mistake in trusting Andronicus, Geza again sued for peace, and the two leaders again signed a treaty, which at this point can't have seemed like much of a guarantee of good behaviour. Finally, though, this one stuck, and Hungary would remain off the radar until Geza's death seven years later. While Manoel was under arms, the Serbs asked him to adjudicate a dispute for them. The Zupan Uros, who had bowed down before the emperor a few years earlier, had been ousted from power by his brother, Dessa. To avert a civil war, the Serb authorities asked their overlord to decide the matter. Manuel made full propaganda value out of this, French, German and Turkic ambassadors all happened to be in his camp at the time, so the emperor had both Serb leaders bow down before him and await his judgment. He restored Uros to power. In classic Roman fashion, though, he allowed Dessa to return to Serbia, awarding him the right to rule territory near the border. Divide and conquer and all that. Manuel then returned to oversee the shambles in Italy, and also to leaf through dispatches from Cilicia, where the situation had somehow deteriorated even further. You may recall that last week the Romans missed out on marrying one of their own to Raymond of Antioch's widow Constance. Instead, she had chosen Reno of Chatillon, a French knight. After Andronicus failed to recover any Cilician cities for Manuel, 
the emperor turned to Reynaud. Komnenos offered rich rewards if the new prince of Antioch would march into Cilicia and defeat Tauros, the leader of the Armenians, in battle. Reynaud did this, but only recovered a few border fortresses for himself. When the Roman authorities refused to pay up for this, Reynaud made Tauros an indecent proposal. He suggested that the two combine forces and raid the nearby island of Cyprus. The two men loaded their troops onto ships and hopped over to Cyprus in the summer of 1156. The two Christian princes then slashed and slaughtered their way around the north of the island, enslaving people and looting monasteries. To be fair to the Latins, this did outrage opinion in the rest of Outremir. After the failure of the Second Crusade, the king of Jerusalem, Baldwin III, had been hoping to gain closer ties to Byzantium, and this bit of nasty piracy was deeply unhelpful. So soon afterwards, he sent an embassy to Constantinople asking for a Komnenian bride to join him in the Holy City. This was a major gesture in favour of the Romans, and Manuel responded warmly, sending his niece, Theodora, along with a dowry of 100,000 gold coins, both of which were to Baldwin's liking. The attack on Cyprus also presented Manuel with an ideal pretext for a campaign in Syria. Neither the Pope nor King Baldwin could object to the Byzantines marching on Antioch and demanding recompense from Reynaud. Next time, the Prince of Antioch will come to regret his rash actions when Manuel leads an army to his doorstep to put him firmly in his place. Next time, I'm afraid, will be in 2022, though. I hope you all have a lovely holiday season, and thank you again for all of your support throughout 2021, which has not been my favourite year. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 